today. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's just uh, get excited about the resurrection because uh, I know that I am <clears throat> stoked to study um, what's been known as the best proved fact in history. And let's go ahead and stand and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Not the whole chapter, we'll do some select verses here. Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declared to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as, one, as by one born out of due time. Jump to verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how does some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now let's go ahead and all remain standing, and we're going to have only those who've gotten engaged this week stay standing. Everybody else sit down. Let's see, who could it be? Who could it be? Oh, yeah. Ow! Adam and Lauren, you guys. Adam used to be the MC at um, Campus Crusade for Christ up at Western University. He used to make guys do that all the time. So finally, I forgot to do it first service, you know, so sorry, buddy. You know, I love you. So, uh, okay, back to Jesus. <laughs> hey, Jesus made marriage. That's all I got to say. So the resurrection, uh, we just read that Paul says it's the gospel. It's the main key fact of the gospel. He says, what I've received, I've also delivered to you. That is the gospel that Jesus came, he lived, he died, and on the third day, he rose again. Now, I am loving more and more the word gospel. In the Greek, it's the word euangelion, or you guys know it, evangelize, and it comes from the language of the battlefield, or the good news of the battlefield. And if you love military history or a good war movie like me, man, you love it when the runner comes up over the hill on his horse, coming back as fast as he can to deliver the good news. And Paul says, this is what I've come to deliver, that Christ came, he lived, he died, which is great, but even better, that he rose from the dead. 
The resurrection has been known as the best proved fact in history by a lot of scholars and a lot of historians. It's been also called the crowning proof of Christianity. Everything else that was said and done by Jesus comes in second to him rising from the dead. That includes him dying on the cross. That includes him walking on water, casting out demons, multiplying fishes and loaves. It all is secondary, although important, to him rising from the dead. The resurrection is the issue. I have to lay, if I had to lay all my cards out on the table and bet all my money and go all in, I would go all in on the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, as we just read in 1 Corinthians, there was a debate. There were people that were saying that the resurrection didn't take place. And Paul says, well, if there's, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus hasn't resurrected. And we are part of a false religion. And we of all men are the most pitiable. But if it did take place, then Christ is God and the Christian faith is absolute truth. And that's why I love ending there at verse 20 where Paul says, now Christ is risen from the dead. And he's just become the first of all of us that will rise from the dead as well. The world's greatest enemy has always been death more than any other men. Even the bad men, what do they bring? They bring death. It's been said that no man, got to get my right finger working here. No man is wise enough to outwit death or wealthy enough to purchase freedom from death or strong enough to crush death. The grave always wins the victory. It's what Romans 8 has called the bondage of corruption, or as you scientists know it, the second law of thermodynamics, that every system goes from uh, order to disorder. It becomes corrupt, and it eventually dies. All great men in history have died. George Washington, you know, the founding father of our country. Abe Lincoln, we all love that guy. Peter Jennings, you know, the guy died. Mr. Rogers, one of my favorite. Homeboy's dead right now. All of the great men in history have died, but Jesus is alive. It's true that he was dead and that he was buried just like every other man in history, but unlike all other men, he rose from the dead, has resurrected his own body, and emerged from the tomb to be alive forevermore. Now, there's a whole lot of opinion out there on who this man, Jesus, is. A lot of men call him a prophet. A lot of men call him just a good man. And I was in Israel last week at the Wailing Wall, and there was, uh, it's divided down the middle, one side for men to go pray towards the wall, kind of facing the closest place they can get to where the Holy of Holies used to sit. On the other side of the wall is where the women would worship. And my friend Kathleen was over there, and she started sharing, sharing at the Wailing Wall with a gal that was there. She said, can I ask you, you know, who is Jesus to you? And she finds out that this lady is obviously a Jewess, you know, a female Jew, but she's also becoming a rabbi. They're allowing that there, some of the more secular Jews. And she said, you know, I really think that Jesus was a really, really good man. And he was a really, really good, obedient Jew. But he was not the son of God, and he was not the Messiah. 
And, you know, that's a lot of what people's views are about Jesus. But C.S. Lewis brought it down to us when he said Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or he's got to be Lord. Because Jesus himself went all in, laid all his chips on the table when he said, you know, all these claims that I'm making, you're going to see it to be true when I rise from the dead. The Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, we want a sign. Show us who you are. And in the words of Bill Ingvall, Jesus said, here's your sign. Right? It's appropriate in Prineville, I think. Here's your sign. Okay? He said, the sign of Jonah. And that's the only sign I'm going to give you. That the Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth in the same fashion that Jonah was. Historically, it happened in the belly of the whale for three days and for three nights. So Jesus said, you want a sign. You want to know if I am God and I'm worthy to be called Lord and I'm able to save people from their sins and I'm worthy to forgive people from their, of their sins. You want a sign? I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, if that didn't happen, then Jesus not only was he not just a good Jew or a good man or whatever, he was actually a crazy man. And our mindset would need to change about who the historical Jesus was. Henry Morris, he's a doctor, and this guy wrote the book on the resurrection besides the book, actually. Um, he did a whole lot of, uh, of in-depth studying, and he says, if all of this is somehow a delusion, and if Jesus of Nazareth did not really rise from the dead then he is no different from other great men who are also dead. He is worse than they, in fact, because he is thereby branded as either a charlatan or a madman. Since he staked all his claims to be absolute deity on his promise to return from the dead. And so, if Jesus is still dead in the ground, laying in some tomb over there in Jerusalem, then every one of us, as Paul said, we're wasting our time. We among all men are the most pitiable. We should be eating and drinking because tomorrow we die. We should enjoy this life because it ends after this. Not only that, we're false teachers because we've been saying that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Now, I wanna give you guys six main points to the resurrection, or as I've just recently started calling it, six fingers of evidence. Just like, you know, I think his name was Ben Thatt or something from the OSU, he was, from the OSU football team, you know, he was a defensive end, and he had six fingers on each hand, and he was just able, I don't know, I think he was able to catch the ball, or you know, a little extra better, you know? So give him a little extra grip, I suppose. Well, we've got six fingers of evidence uh, to prove that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. We have got grip to our arguments and to our witnessing and to our sharing. And many of you, you have the heart to fulfill the Great Commission. You have the heart to tell people about Jesus, but you just don't know how to even start. You know, you kind of go up there and, did you know you're going to hell? You know, and oh gosh, that just ruined everything. You know, um, and you know, sometimes the Holy Spirit does lead us to say that. But one great place to start is, hey, let's talk about the empty tomb. You know, download some pictures on your phone of, of the empty tomb and just begin telling people about this Jesus who claimed to be God and said, if I'm God, I'll rise from the dead. So let's talk about the resurrection. Six main points of the resurrection this morning. Number one, 
The resurrection is the foundation of Christianity. Without the resurrection of Jesus, it's clear that there would be no Christian church. After his death, his disciples were clearly confused, afraid for their lives, and there's no possibility, as Simon Greenleaf says, that they could have continued on in Jesus's doctrines. There's an even greater impossibility that others would have been persuaded to follow these disciples under the circumstances that Jesus is dead and laying in the ground somewhere in Jerusalem. But Knowing that Jesus was alive, they went forth boldly throughout the whole known world and declared the resurrection to be absolute fact. Now, the importance of the resurrection in the early church is easily seen by scanning the book of Acts, kind of that first history of Jesus ascending and the boys going out and the girls too and telling the whole world about Jesus and him being alive. And so you guys remember, you know, a year ago, we just finished the book of Acts, and I had you every time as we were going through it, put a little R next to the verses that dealt with the resurrection. Some of you guys, your pens ran out of ink, because there's just so many little R's. The book of Acts um, is uh, chock full of these references, and it starts out in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, when Peter, uh, preaching with boldness to about 3,000 people, or probably more than that, And he begins to declare to them, you guys all remember Psalm chapter 16, verse 9, how it was promised that the Messiah's body would not be left in the abode for the dead, but that it would rise from the dead and it would be glorified. It would not see corruption. The worm would not eat it. And he began to preach about that in Acts chapter 2. And he said, we know that David wasn't writing about himself because he died. And here we are in Jerusalem and we can go to his tomb today and open it up and there's the bones of our father David in there he is still dead and he began to preach that the one that didn't stay dead but that rose from the dead was Jesus of Nazareth whom they by lawless hands had crucified and over 3,000 Jews knew it to be true that day and they said what are we supposed to do we've killed the holy one of Israel and Peter says repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Also in the epistles, the resurrection is huge. And if you could just flip over to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we just have an idea of how Jesus being alive was that solid ground of the church, that cornerstone. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we worship God for this hope and this forgiveness, but what is that hope based upon? It's based upon the sign that Jesus said to look for. The sign that he is no longer dead in the tomb, but he's alive and resurrected from the dead. So in the book of Acts, in the epistles, even in the final book of Revelation, Jesus opens up by identifying identifying himself two different times in one chapter as, first of all, the first begotten of the dead. And then later on in verse 18, the one that lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. That was the foundation stone, that our God is not dead, but he is alive. So 
First point for you guys, that it was the foundation of Christianity, the second finger that gives us grip in our witnessing, are all of the predictions of the resurrection. Now, the resurrection of Jesus caught the disciples totally off guard. There's no indication that anybody was just waiting around for him to appear. In fact, when they did see Jesus in his resurrected state, they were frightened like they'd seen a ghost, Luke chapter 24 tells us, or they didn't even recognize him. Even though Jesus had prophesied and told them that they would go to Jerusalem, he would be betrayed into the, into the hands of men, he would be murdered, and then he says, but don't worry, on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And after he says that, Peter rebukes him and says, not so, Lord, it's not going to happen to you. It's like, get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but only of the things of men. And so these prophecies, let's go back to Psalm chapter 16 and look at verses 9 through 10. Just looking at a few verses for the sake of time today. Psalm 16, my mother-in-law is calling me on my phone right now. Shame, shame, she should be in church. It says there, verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in shale, the abode of the dead. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Well, who is this Holy One anyways? Who says it's Jesus? Well, in Mark chapter 1, the demon-possessed guy that came up to Jesus, the demon himself said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons believed, the demons knew that Jesus was the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. And the prophets foretold that he would not stay dead in the ground, that the worm would not eat his flesh, and that his body would would not decay. Even if they missed all the prophecies from the Old Testament, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah chapter 12, then certainly they would have gotten the resurrection idea from the lips of Jesus himself. And yet they just seemed to keep missing it. They didn't comprehend this resurrection in the middle of world history, that that could possibly happen. On the contrary, they somehow failed to even anticipate it. In the much prophecy and Jesus saying it, they just weren't getting it. It took the strongest of evidences to convince them that it had taken place. So there were prophecies, but no one was getting it, okay? Now, even, you know, um, you know history and, and secular accounts, they all believed that there would be some kind of resurrection, but they just hoped it wouldn't happen now. You know, for even the Jews, there's going to be a resurrection one day will be resurrected at the end of time, but in the middle of history, it just, I just can't comprehend it happening. You guys remember when Lazarus died and Jesus went there to, uh, to heal Lazarus before he died, and Mary and Martha come weeping and kind of mad at him. Why could you have made it in time? It's because of you that he died, and Jesus starts talking to them about the resurrection, and Mary says, I know that Lazarus is going to rise one day from the end, and blah, 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 and Jesus goes, no, I'm the resurrection and the life now. And he springs up Lazarus from the grave to show that he's got the power, that he is the man of life. And so all of these prophecies, people just weren't getting it, although they were there. The third main finger of evidence 
when we talk to our friends and when I'm talking to you today of the resurrection is the beautiful evidence of the empty tomb. One of my favorite parts of um, studying the resurrection. Uh, A week ago, I was in Israel and I was actually in the garden tomb last Sunday. And uh, we spent the day on the Mount of Olives, beginning at the Mount of Olives, and then we cruised down on the path that Jesus walked on Palm Sunday. And then we went up through the gate that was the area that he would have went through. We spent about an hour on the exact stones that Jesus was whipped and beaten upon there in the Antonia Fortress. And then we made our way out of there to Golgotha, to the place of the skull, and a stone's throw away is the empty tomb. I recorded a a video about it. It just wasn't great quality to show you guys today. But um, be looking on Facebook because it's coming, right? Um, And so, but I got to go. We ended up, our final stop there in Israel last Sunday was spending time worshiping at the empty tomb. And I got to teach 50 people about the resurrection with the tomb right there behind me. One of the highlights of my life. I can die now and be a happy man. Before I wasn't happy. Um, Just kidding, I'm joking there. Um, But the empty tomb was the first evidence that the disciples had of the resurrection. In John chapter 20, you read of Peter and John hearing that someone had moved the body of the Lord and we don't know where to find it. And so Peter and John go running. Peter starts out first and then John makes sure everybody knows that John passed Peter and was faster than Peter and that he got to the tomb first. But when he got to the the door, the stone had been thrown away. He stopped and didn't go inside. And then John tells us that the huff and puff and Peter came running up behind him, pushes John out of the way, goes on in, and finally John goes in, and it says, when John saw, he believed. That's the thing about Christianity, you guys. If you want to be saved, you've got to have faith like a child. You've got to be able to just, you know, have just the most simple faith and know, hey, Jesus said he'd rise from the dead. The tomb is empty. John believed. He looked in, and he saw the clothes folded in upon themselves as if, a, you know, as if a body had just moved out from under them and then the head rag folded up at the feet and he said, I believe. And I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna tell people. So John saw the empty tomb and he believed. It was powerful enough for John. And so powerful is the testimony of the empty tomb. Some pictures of the inside there, the left, kind of behind the fence and to the left would have been the area Uh, that Jesus would have been laid. Interesting, of all the debates that this is the actual tomb or not, this tomb shows that somebody was hastily laid in it. It was in a garden, a rich man's tomb. No one had been laid there before. And there at the platform, somebody hastily laid someone that was taller than they were, and they had to dig out a little area for a taller man's feet to go. And so that's one of the most beautiful, you know, so much exciting things about uh, the tomb. And whether this is it or not, Uh, Even the people that work there and and own the tomb, they say, hey, Jesus isn't here. He's risen. And if you go into the tomb to look, take Jesus in with you, but bring him back out, okay, with you too, because we've got to go share him with the world. Um, The empty tomb is such a powerful argument for the resurrection of Jesus. And really, the burden of um, refuting this lays on the skeptic. Now, everyone would know that everyone says, even the critic says that there is an empty tomb Now the argument is, what happened to the body? Where did it go? And so these critics have attempted to explain away the resurrection through many strange and wonderful devices. Their first argument would be that the disciples had stolen the body. 
Now, this is nothing new. In Matthew chapter 27 and chapter 28, we see chapter 27, verse 62, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came before Jesus, or right after Jesus had been taken off the cross. They came into Pontius Pilate and they said, you know what? We know that that deceiver said that after three days, or after three days he would rise from the dead. And we just know that these disciples, they're going to sneak in and they're going to steal the body. And if that takes place, the, the second deception will be worse than the first. And so Pilate said, all right, you have a guard of Roman soldiers. Go and seal the tomb and make it as secure as you know how. And so he sent away 15, at least, a squad of Roman soldiers to protect the tomb. And it was on those soldiers' lives. If anything happened to that body of Jesus, they would be executed and slaughtered. So a skilled set of Roman soldiers were, were given to the Pharisees to make sure nothing happens, that nobody would come in and steal the body. Matthew chapter 28 says that uh, in verse 11, that after the resurrection took place, some of the guard of the Roman soldiers that were there came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened, that Jesus had resurrected. And when they assembled the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell them the disciples came away at night and stole away the body while we slept. If it comes to the governor's ears, we'll appease them and make sure that you are not executed. So they took the money and went as they were instructed. And this saying that the disciples stole the body is commonly reported to this day. Now, we know the demeanor and the emotions of the disciples at the, gar at the Garden of Gethsemane, don't we? When Jesus was arrested, were the disciples like, let's you know, stand here and stand now. I mean, Peter did some funky thing with a sword, chopped off a guy's ear, you know, and then they all went running away. Even John Mark ran away and had his little sheet that was covering up his nakedness torn off of him, and he ran away naked, you know. These guys were terrified. And they ran off. Not one of them was, you know, seen for quite a while. John and Peter go to Caiaphas's house where Peter denies Jesus, knowing Jesus, denies him three times and cusses in the process of it. I do not know that guy. Terrified in fear of his life. The disciples were out hiding in fear of their lives and nothing could have been further from their thoughts than to make some sort of Navy SEAL team made out of, you know, disciples. And to go in and take out a garrison of Roman soldiers. We know the tomb had been sealed, a great stone, some 2,000 pounds rolled in front of it, and that watch of Roman guards set uh, to guard it. And so uh, knowing their feel fearful state, a great impossibility that they would have been able to pull off uh, such a heist, getting the body of Jesus out of there. Then the question is asked, then what do we do? <laughs> Now we've got a body on our hands. Well, let's go evangelize the rest of the world. Okay, so the next great attempt that, that is made to explain away the empty tomb is called the swoon theory. And this suggests that Jesus actually never died on the cross at all. But from the great blood loss and the dehydration, there he was up on the, up on the cross, and he just, faith, he just fainted. And so he was taken down, wrapped in burial, over 100 pounds, we're told, 100 pounds of burial spices and linens placed within the tomb. As the door was shut, the cool air of the tomb in a few days revived Jesus back to life. And he was able to 
breakthrough out of the linens and the crusted spices and fragrances, find his way through the dark, get a good finger hold on the bottom of that two-ton rock, and throw it off a great distance, as the Gospels say the stone was. Then the great stone throw woke up about 15 skilled Roman soldiers, and Jesus just went kung fu panda on these guys. He does a couple barrel rolls, a couple mule kicks and side kicks, you know, gouged to the eye, and he had these guys taken care of, where then he went and jumped over the wall of the garden and made it to the disciples' house, where they then put him in a sick bed in the closet of the upper room, put an IV in his arm, and get, gave a nurse there to, you know, nurse him for the rest of history, where nobody saw him again. So, that is one option, the swoon theory. This swooned Jesus must soon or eventually die later anyways. But we do know from Mark's gospel, chapter 15, verse 43, that when Joseph of Arimathea wanted to get Jesus down from the cross, Pilate said, is he dead already? And so he sent a Roman soldier to go and double check and to make sure, and that soldier thrust a spear up through Jesus' side. And uh, we know from John's gospel, or Luke's gospel, excuse me, that what came out? Blood and water, right? And doctors will tell you nowadays that's evidence of a collapsed heart cavity. His heart literally blew up inside his chest. There was no doubt that he was dead. Pilate said he's dead. His centurion said that he was dead. And Jesus was buried as dead. The third way to explain away the beautiful empty tomb is to say that Mary and the other women just went to the wrong tomb in the morning. We all know that happens, right? Don't mess with the women, okay? Don't mess with the women. Uh, the cool thing is, that, and last week I spent some time reading through every gospel account of the resurrection. Luke's gospel says that the women were some of the last people there at the tomb, and when the stone was shut, they observed exactly how Jesus' body was laid and which tomb it was. The accounts also tell us that it was the only tomb in the area. It was a stone's throw from the cross and that nobody else had been laid there. And so, uh, and also the gospel accounts tell us that they didn't have any problem finding the right tomb, uh, that the, the clothes were there and, and everything like that. So a lot of devices brought up to, to explain away not only the resurrection, but the empty tomb. We're going to come back to some, uh, another one of those explanations but the fourth finger of evidence in explaining to your friends and you hearing now about the resurrection are all of the eyewitness accounts the appearances of Jesus now not only was the tomb empty but the disciples actually got to see the risen Jesus there's over 13 separate occasions in the scriptures uh, where Jesus was seen I remember living in Klamath Falls in the news station there. The, the evening news was called Eyewitness News. You know, you know, and I just remember being like, there's just something cool about the name of that. And I didn't even realize how important eyewitness accounts were. Uh, we have in the scriptures plenty of eyewitness accounts. And I'm just going to list them off to you. Lickety split. Uh, he appeared to Mary Magdalene after he rose from the dead. He appeared to the other women, to Peter to two on the road to Emmaus, to 10 of the disciples, to all 11 of the disciples eight days later, to seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee, to 500 followers at one time, to James, to the 11 at the Ascension, 
Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says that he showed himself to be alive for 40 days by many infallible proofs. He proved it. He was seen by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, by Paul in Acts chapter 9, and by John in the book of Revelation. This is all historical info. In fact, even the account we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 has been widely regarded as an actual historical historical account of who all witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. And that brings us to another attempt to explain away the resurrection, attempt number four, by saying that all of these eyewitness accounts were merely just hallucinations or visions or some kind of hysteria or by some vision uh, brought about by drugs or hypnosis or hysteria. Well, to quote, um, what was his name again? Let's see here. Blanken. Dr. Henry Morris, he's like one of my new best friends and I forgot his name. Henry Morris says, such hallucinations, if this is what they were, are quite unique in human history and warrant the most careful psychologic scrutiny. They were experienced by a large number of different individuals, all seeing the same vision, but in different groups at different times both indoors and outdoors, on a hilltop, along a roadway, by a lakeshore, and other places. Furthermore, they were not looking for Jesus at all. Several times they didn't recognize him at first, and at least once they actually believed it was a ghost until he convinced them otherwise. He invited them to touch him, and they recognized the wounds in his hands. They watched him eat with them. On one occasion, over 500 different people saw him at one time, most of whom were still living at the time when the, when the evidence was being used. The vision theory is thus quite impossible, and therefore the numerous appearances of Christ must be regarded as absolutely historical and genuine. This fact, combined with the evidence of the empty tomb, renders the resurrection as certain as any fact of history could possibly be. Is that exciting or what? Amen. And so we come to the second to last main finger of the resurrection. That is the witness of the apostles. Again, it's completely impossible to think that the apostles could have preached and written as they did unless they were absolutely sincere and under the deep conviction of the truth for which they saw. They'd instantly change from runaways who were denying Jesus to guys that would stand up in front of thousands of people and face even death to give this message of the gospel out there. Uh, the preaching cost them their possessions, their lives, their families. They, they faced horrible, uh, horrible deaths. They had nothing to gain out of spreading a lie throughout the then known world. But they kept preaching as long as strength permitted And if one of them was slaughtered, they went on with greater strength and veracity than ever before. You know, there's few even accounts from war of such courage that these men who had nothing to gain went through to preach the good news of Jesus. Sosthenes, who was a Roman historian, said that punishment and persecution was inflicted on the Christians as a class of men given over to a new and mischievous miracle. 
But if they were all faking the resurrection, if somewhere they had the body of Jesus hidden away on a sickbed, barely alive somewhere, if they were involved in some kind of a plot or really not really sure if they'd seen Jesus or another guy with a similar beard style that kind of looked like Jesus, that they would have continued suffering and dying and losing friends and possessions if it all were that lie. We look at the lives of the apostles, and Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15, we read it, but we didn't get all the way down to verse 30, where he just simply says, if the resurrection didn't happen, then why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? You know, being over in Israel, and the tour guide that I've known for 11 years named Elon, he uh, got to come over to Oregon a couple years ago, and he went rafting down the Mackenzie River with my pastor, Rob. And he just laid in the raft, and he just said, you don't know what it's like to have peace and to not have an enemy on every side of you trying to kill you. As you look at Israel, all around their borders, they've had, these people have sought their extermination to drive them into the sea. Right now, Jordan is one of their only neighboring allies. And so for these guys to have gone through the rest of their life with people trying to slaughter them and the stress that that brings about, really to be shell-shocked, you know, from being a missionary, it means a big thing. Why would they stand in jeopardy every hour? The resurrection evidence is seen in their deaths. All of them were killed except for John, who was simply boiled in a vat of hot oil and sent into prison and uh, isolation on the island of Patmos, simply. Uh, Everyone was killed a martyr's death. Simon Peter killed by Nero by being crucified upside down. Doctors have done studies on what that would do to your body, and they believe that his insides were pressed out of his mouth. As he hung there on the cross, he didn't deny Jesus. His brother Andrew was crucified on a cross X-shaped outside of Odessa. Not only would he not deny Jesus, but he actually preached to people that were walking by as he was hanging there naked on the cross. James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by Herod Agrippa by the sword. Philip was put in prison and scourged and then crucified. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten, then crucified. Thomas and Matthew were both thrust through with a spear. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death. Jude was crucified like Andrew outside of Odessa. Simon was crucified. Paul was beheaded in Rome. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. And so all of these deaths of apostles are evident. The resurrection explains beautifully the conversion of Saul, who became Paul, who was on the road to Damascus to murder Christians and to imprison Christians. And then he immediately changed from Saul to Paul, one of the greatest pastors and evangelists and apostles that the world ever saw. Church being changed from Saturday to Sunday, a giant change in a group of people who always met on the Sabbath day now began worshiping on Sunday, the first day of the week. Because of what? Because of the resurrection. We look at how the church has changed lives for over 2,000 years, and we can see how the lives of the apostles are great evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. I was between my junior and senior year in high school, and I went to this outdoor camp. It wasn't a Christian camp. We had to do it for school. And I just made it my aim to preach the gospel and make it my youth camp because I didn't get to go to church camp that year because of it. And I'd do worship around the campfire and people would come around and sing and 
preached the gospel, and I met with about 10 of my friends, and I laid them out. I talked to them about the empty tomb and the lives of the apostles, and every one of those friends bowed the knee to Jesus right there around a log. We were sitting around a log. I remember, I'm just like, how do you explain the lives and deaths of the apostles? Jesus is alive, and they all said, yes, yes, he is alive. It's great to be Facebook friends with them and to kind of catch up as time goes by and see how they're doing. And so not only do we have all of these five fingers of evidence, but we're going to get a little OSU defensive end, and we're going to throw a sixth finger in there. It's, it's kind of new. And it is the uh, testimonies of additional authorities and some of our contemporaries up through history and even in our day uh, today. We're going to start out with a guy that lived just after the time of Jesus. His name was Josephus. Uh, he was born right after Jesus ascended. And he is best known as being a Roman historian. But Josephus has kind of become a new friend of mine. I've been reading some of his uh, books and history that's based off of his writings. And I never knew this, but Josephus was actually uh, the Roman rebels leader when it, towards 70 AD, about 67 AD, when Rome was coming down and, and everything leading up to the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem. Josephus was the leader of the rebels. People thought he might even be the Messiah. And after one of the first major sieges in Jadapata, funny name I know, uh, he was captured, said he had a vision from God, something for Titus uh, that he should know. And then he became a Roman historian for the rest of that war and tried to plead with his people to surrender. And so as I've been learning about him and the Jews thought he was a traitor after Jadapata, um, I was like, whatever happened to him? And what did he ever think about Jesus? I mean, he had to have heard about Jesus, right? And I love that I found this. It's in his Testimonian Flavium, or the Testimony of Josephus Flavius. He says this. It's in the Antiquities. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold. These and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians so named from him, are not extinct to this day. And we say, Josephus, we're still not extinct. And you can call us a tribe. We're going to get tattoos, tribal. Okay, anyways. So exciting to hear, you know, someone that's, you know, external of a lot of the events that happen. Kind of a secular historian. Just super regarded in the Roman culture. And even among the Jews today, they read his accounts and pretty much what he wrote is all that we know of what happened in the siege down in Israel and down through um, Jerusalem. A man named Thomas Arnold, the uh, former husband of Roseanne. Looks a little younger there. Thomas Arnold was the professor of history at Rugby and of Oxford, who viewed the combined evidence of the empty tomb, all the numerous appearances, and the change in the disciples' lives uh, he wrote this. He's known as one of the world's greatest historians. I know of no one fact in the history of mankind 
which is proved by better, fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. And so I ask you today, are you a fair inquirer? You know, when you come to the table to dialogue about who Jesus is or who any other man of history is, do you come to the table with your biases and your presuppositions and you hold them close-handed? Or do you say, hey, give me the facts, give me the info, I want truth. And if that is the case, you will see many great men in the next few minutes, men who are scholars, men who are widely regarded as great, intelligent men, men of history, men of renown, and that they all came with open hands and found Jesus to be alive and to truly be Lord and to truly be the Savior of the world. And so I ask you to come today as a fair inquirer and to look at the sign that God's given us that Christ died and that he rose from the dead. Another one of my new best friends, uh, Dr. Simon Greenleaf, I've talked so much about him and about this book that he wrote that, you know, they used to have long titles of books. Now you have hope with a period after it. No, that's the, no. his book was called From an Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists by the Rules of Evidence Administered in the Courts of Justice. Whew, what book was that again that I was supposed to get? I started reading this last night and got halfway through, and it is incredible. Well, Simon Greenleaf was the royal professor of law at Harvard University. He's been known as one of the greatest legal minds that's ever lived. And he wrote the famous legal treatise that I just read right there. I'm not going to read it again. Um, Dr. Simon Greenleaf believed that the resurrection of Jesus was a hoax. And he determined once and for all to expose the myth of the resurrection. And so as he set out, and did his um, investigation, he came to the exact opposite conclusion. And in this book, he basically uses all the rules of law that he knows, and he puts the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, on trial. And it's really cool to read his little trial. And this is what he says. It's impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths that they had narrated had not Jesus Christ actually risen from the dead. And Greenleaf concluded that according to the jurisdiction of legal evidence, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the best supported fact in all of history. Of course, Greenleaf was so convinced by the overwhelming evidence that he yielded his life to Christ as his Savior and as his Lord. John Singleton Copley has been known as one of the greatest legal minds in British history. He was the Solicitor General of the British government, Attorney General of Great Britain, three times High Chancellor of England, and elected as High Steward at the University of Cambridge. He held in one lifetime the highest offices ever appointed a judge in Great Britain. And I love reading about these guys because it's so cool to have brains on our side, you know, in our quarter. You got guys like me that are just men of faith, like God said to jump over the cliff, and we're going to jump, you know. And then you got guys that are like, hey, we've looked at all the evidence, and we found it to be true. It's a picture of my marriage, really, you know. I'm an idealist, Lindsay, a realist, okay. So, but John Singleton Copley said, I, and this is found, this was found near his deathbed, 
in his letters on his desk. And this is, he had it just on his desk. I know pretty well what evidence is. And I tell you, such evidence as the evidence for the resurrection has never broken down yet. I don't know what to share with my friends about Jesus. I mean, I just, hey, resurrection, baby. Bring it on. Talk to them about how Jesus isn't dead, but he proved himself to be Lord and Savior by rising from the dead. Here's one of my heroes for many different reasons. His name is Lord Darling. He's kind of like the boy named Sue. He's the once Lord and Chief Justice of England, and he could rock the wig like nobody's business. But he says this, no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. Dr. Frank Morrison, a bit more of a modern contemporary of ours, uh, was a lawyer who'd been brought up at the feet of such well-known atheists and skeptics as Oxford professor Matthew Arnold and biologist and evolutionist uh, Thomas Huxley. Both of these guys openly denied the resurrection of Jesus. And so Frank Morrison set out He felt he owed it to himself and to the rest of the world to write a book that would, again, dispel the mythological story of the resurrection. And in looking at all of the evidence, guess what happened? He came to the exact opposite conclusion, and he did indeed write a book. But he changed the title a little bit to Who Moved the Stone? A Skeptic's Look at the Death and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, he became a Christian as well. Most of you know and love this guy, C.S. Lewis. You love his Chronicles of Narnia movies, but you may not have known he wrote books too called Chronicles of Narnia. They're great. But uh, C.S. Lewis, you may not have known, he was the uh, former professor of medieval and Renaissance history at Cambridge, and he believed, quote, Christians are dead wrong. He couldn't have been further opposed to Christianity and this gospel that they preached, that there was a God who died and rose again. The last thing he ever wanted to do was embrace Christianity. However, in 1926, he writes this in his journal. The hardest boiled of all atheists I ever knew sat in my room at the other side of the fire and remarked that the evidence for the historicity of the gospels was really surprisingly good. All this stuff about the dying God, it almost looked as if it had really happened once. To understand the shattering impact of it, you would need to know this guy who's never before shown any interest in Christianity. If he, the cynic of cynics, the toughest of the tough, were not, as I would have put it, safe, where will I turn? Was there no escape? And so... Lewis set out and evaluated the basis and evidence and historicity of Christianity. He concluded that all that no other religion has such historical claim as Christianity. His knowledge of literature forced him to treat the gospel accounts as trustworthy and legitimate. He says this, I was by now too experienced in literary criticism to regard the gospels as myth. And so finally, contrary to his strong stand against Christianity, he writes in his journal, you must picture me alone in my room that night, Magdala, excuse me, Magdala, night after night, feeling that whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, 
the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the third term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England, wrestling with the overwhelming amount of evidence. And so maybe you were brought here today, your friend brought you, your family member, and maybe you've been a part of Calvary Chapel of Crick County for quite a while. And you've been wrestling with the evidence. And even today, as it's given to you, you realize that the cost is great. The cost of being a disciple of Jesus is great. But we believe that God has brought you here by his grace and by his mercy so that you could hear that message of the God who loved his creation so much that he came and he suffered and died the most humiliating, excruciating death that man has ever known. But that he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And in his resurrection has given to you a living hope that not only one day will you rise from the dead, but even in this life, you'll experience his presence and his resurrection power dwelling inside of you. It's the euangelion, the good news of the battlefield. Jesus has paid it all and won the victory for those that would believe in him. Jesus says in John chapter 14, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. He said there to Mary, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her, do you believe this? And he's asking you today, do you believe this? The word believe means to trust and to place one's full weight upon in rest. Do you rest in what Jesus did for you on the cross and what he did for you at the empty tomb? And if you do, you'll never die. If you die, you're going to live. And the scriptures actually tell us that every one of us is going to be resurrected. And that some of us are going to be resurrected in the very bodies that you're sitting and breathing in now. It'll be resurrected from the dead and you will be judged. And you will be found wanting in the presence of a holy God. And you will be cast into hell in the body that you have now where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. There will be tormenting and gnashing of teeth. There's also a group that will be resurrected and they will stand before the judgment of Christ and they will say, I have no righteousness in and of myself, but all I have is found in Jesus. And Jesus is gonna say, enter into the joy of the Lord. Come and spend eternity with me, worshiping me in paradise for as long as you could ever even imagine and then some. But you must believe. You must rest. And even if you come today, like C.S. Lewis, just, oh, it's just gonna mean a lot of cost. It's gonna mean, I mean, look at these Christians. Oh, you know, I don't wanna be like those guys. Just confess that to the Lord right now. 
Lord, I am reluctant. Lord, I'm hard-hearted. Lord, it's going to mean a change in my life. But I've been shown today that you're alive. And I declare you right now to be Lord and Messiah, the Savior of the world. So take my heart out of me and put your heart in me that I could love your people, that I could love your call on my life. And you know what? He'll do it. A broken heart and a contrite spirit. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.